Well, several years ago on spring break, my wife Tina and I and our two sons, Philip and Casey, visited the new Abraham Lincoln Presidential Museum in Springfield. We arrived early that day to find the nearly empty museum extremely well done, combining scholarship and high-tech showmanship that makes our audiovisual system look dated. The galleries communicate the life and times of Abraham Lincoln in absolutely unforgettable ways. The experience was very moving. Now, near the end of the tour, you approach a nearly full-scale replica of Representatives Hall in Springfield's old state capital. And they, there they recreated the exact moment in May of 1865 as Lincoln lies in state. Now, having walked through Lincoln's life, you now file past the closed casket as though you too are paying your last respects. Standing there, I, I was overwhelmed by the Holy Spirit as I considered God's sovereign purposes for Lincoln's life. He had lived in relative obscurity for over two decades until he burst onto the national political landscape and both loved and hated as he was, navigated our country through perhaps its most perilous division. No matter what his personal religious convictions and persuasions may have been, God used Lincoln to most importantly, penned the Emancipation Proclamation, which paved the way for the abolition of slavery and subsequently the freedom for thousands of slaves. Now, this morning, we're joining with over 2 billion Christians, count them, of every nation, culture, and language scattered all around the globe who are observing Easter. And in buildings far less grand than his museum, we're celebrating the legacy of a man uh, much greater than Abraham Lincoln, a man whose life and death and resurrection proclaimed an emancipation of a different sort. Uh, this weekend, followers of Christ are rejoicing that he lives, that his kingdom has come, and that he has set us free and filled us with hope. Now, in our church family, we're also concluding a 40-day adventure that we've called Finding Real Life. Uh, through the days of Lent, we've been asking Jesus for his love and truth and power to break through into our lives, into our family, into our, our friends, and the lives of our, of our communities and, uh, that are represented here. And I thought it'd be great just to, to share a few breakthrough reports to encourage and stir you hope, uh, your hope. Now, many of you were uh, able, by God's grace, to identify more closely with the suffering Savior in the days of Lent through fasting of some kind. And for that, I'm really grateful. Cheryl, Catherine, Caitlin, Kelly, and Jim received brand new jobs. Tanya and Lamar sold their house. Tony received an inner healing through forgiveness at his small group. Elliot reports that his prayers for strength of character and confidence and stability through arduous circumstances were answered. Uh, Wendy and Mike witnessed a dramatic change in the life of uh, one of their children. Another family received a relatively large and unexpected financial gift at just the right time. And Ruth shared with me just on the way in this morning that Wednesday after receiving prayer, her knee that had been like giving out on her like has been totally and completely healed. So these are good reasons to give God thanks and praise. Amen. Let's just uh, pray together as we begin this morning. Father, you are good all the time, and we praise you this morning as we join with your followers from all around the world.
to celebrate the powerful Easter story. Jesus, we thank you that you died for our sins upon the cross, that you were buried, and on the third day you rose again to make us right with you. We thank you, Lord, uh, that the kingdom of darkness and sin and evil has been defeated, that you've given us as your followers a brand new real life. And now we pray the prayer that you taught us to pray. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven through the person of the Holy Spirit whose presence we welcome today among us and in our lives. In your name, amen. The Lincoln Museum contains over 40,000 square feet of exhibit space, was built uh, at the cost of $56.7 million to Illinois taxpayers. Thank you very much. You can see Lincoln's reading glasses, his shaving mirror, his personal letters, and his wife Mary's music box, jewelry, and glasses and dresses. And what I found most impressive there was a copy of the Gettysburg Address written in Lincoln's own handwriting. And across the street at the Presidential Library, there are thousands more manuscripts, photographs, prints, and deeds and letters that give us keen first-hand insight into the life of Abraham Lincoln. In contrast, it's astounding how actually little we know about Jesus Christ, the one person who's done more to change history than any other. We have none of his original handwritten manuscripts or personal letters, no reading glasses, no shaving mirror. We know for certainty only what comes from the four Gospels in the New Testament, where the biography of Christ occupies a mere 97 pages in my thin line Bible. Now, the authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, record in highly selective fashion a few key events in the life and ministry of Jesus. But then, in an uncharacteristic manner, uh, they suddenly explode with a, a flurry of detail covering the last week of Christ's life. In fact, nearly a third of their length and over one half of the Gospel of John uh, are devoted to these seven days. And in a simple, unadorned style, the Gospels record and describe the passion of the Christ. His last meal with the disciples his betrayal by Judas, his prayers and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trials, conviction, and sentencing, and then finally his overwhelming suffering and the torture of his violent and brutal death through crucifixion. But as gripping as the story and record of Jesus' death is, what happened after it is even more startling. And if you have a Bible together, we'll read the account from the Gospel of Mark. You can follow along on the screens, but we're going to read this, this account in Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 to 8. Saturday evening, when the Sabbath ended, Mary Magdalene and Salome and Mary, the mother of James, went out and purchased burial spices so they could anoint Jesus' body. Very early on Sunday morning, just at sunrise, they went out to the tomb. On the way, they were asking each other, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance to the tomb? But as they arrived, they looked up and saw that the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled aside. 
When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a white robe sitting on the right side. The women were shocked. The angel said, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead. Look, this is where they laid his body. Now, go. Tell his disciples, including Peter, that Jesus is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you'll see him there, just as he told you before he died. The women fled from the tomb, trembling and bewildered. And they said nothing to anyone because they were too frightened. And then they briefly reported all this to Peter and his companions. Afterward, Jesus himself sent them out from east to west with the sacred and unfailing message of salvation that gives eternal life. Amen. So the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most astounding historical fact, and it lies at the heart of the Christian faith. N.T. Wright, one of the most influential and respected theologians in the world today, says in his excellent book, The Challenge of Jesus, and I quote, There is no form of early Christianity known to us that does not affirm that at its heart, that after Jesus' shameful death, God raised him to life again. Those early Christians said over and over again exactly what we've just read in Mark's report. Three days after Jesus' execution and burial, he was raised to bodily life again. Now, they all knew, as well as we do today, that things like that just don't happen, right? When people died, they stayed dead. In first century Palestine, as well as in 21st century advanced scientifically America, Lincoln is still dead. In fact, if you go visit Springfield, you can go to Oak Ridge Cemetery and visit Lincoln's tomb where his remains still rest today. And when Jesus died, his saddened and disillusioned followers certainly weren't expecting him to come back to life. And yet they said loudly and clearly over and over that that's exactly what happened. It was not a corporate hallucination. It was not a grief-induced fantasy. It it wasn't a well-conceived conspiracy to give a jump start to a new world religion. Uh, It was not a resuscitation where a nearly dead Jesus was revived by the cool, damp environment of the tomb. it, It was for real. So what does the for real resurrection mean? Well, I'd like to uh, give you just a little background in order to help us understand its implications. The nation of Israel was in deep trouble. Over a thousand years had passed since the reigns of Kings David and Solomon, his son, when abundance and prosperity marked the golden days of Israel's empire. Now ravaged by civil war, uh, Israel had become a divided kingdom. It had suffered invasion and defeat at the hands of the Babylonians, who carried away the best and brightest of of Israelites' uh, uh, nation to, to now live in exile. In those dark days, God would occasionally send a prophet to the people and and stir their hope by encouraging them with promises that things would not always stay this way. Uh, they pointed to a new day called the Day of the Lord, uh, when 
God himself would intervene in the history of the world and would bring his kingdom by setting his people free from exile. Over and over, the prophets, men like Jeremiah and Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and others, said that Israel's exile was soon to come to an end as God himself, the king, would come to live in Jerusalem. And in a wider sense, they understood that the day of the Lord meant uh, that, that there would be a renewal of the whole earth, that, that they would see the end of evil and injustice and pain and suffering as peace and prosperity would dawn in this new age to come. But in the time of Christ, God's people were still living in despair under the oppressive rule of the pagan Roman government. There were nevertheless a, a faithful remnant holding unswervingly to the promises that God had given through the prophets. They were waiting waiting, waiting for the Messiah to come. <clears throat> Excuse me. Imagine, if, if, you, if you will, that you're a child um, or that you have children, grandchildren, and, and you're, they're eagerly anticipating the arrival of Christmas Eve and, and all that, that that wonderful, magical holiday represents, only to discover year after year after year the holiday never arrived. I mean... Your heart would ache, wouldn't it, for the excitement of, of that day? Yes, it would. And, and in a similar way, God's people longed for his kingdom to finally come and to come soon. And then Jesus showed up with a revolutionary announcement. It's recorded in Mark's gospel. Jesus said, at last, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. Turn from your sins and believe this good news. Jesus was saying the long-awaited kingdom was now here. The day of the Lord has come. And then he launched his ministry with an emancipation proclamation that's recorded in Luke's gospel, the fourth chapter. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. So in an unexpected way, the blessings of that future age to come were invading this present evil age as Jesus forgave sin, healed the sick, and released the demonized captives, as he encouraged the hopeless, as he restored those who had been marginalized, uh, as he brought real life. All kinds of people everywhere were experiencing the Lord's favor. And in this sense, Jesus' ministry was the inauguration of the kingdom of God, the new age to come. His teachings showed men and women how to enter the kingdom. His miraculous works proved the kingdom had come. His parables taught the mysteries of the kingdom and his prayers encouraged his followers to desire its full expression. Your kingdom come, your will be done on the earth as it is in heaven. And then when Jesus was, uh, was crucified and then rose from the dead, God authenticated everything that he had taught and demonstrated about the kingdom. It, it was true. His four real resurrection 
was the incontestable proof to those first century followers that God's recreation of all things had already begun. And so now compelled by the Easter story, those early Christ followers scattered through all the known world at the time proclaiming this good news about God's kingdom. And it's interesting that the Holy Spirit uh, records a, a snapshot of early church history in the New Testament book of Acts, and it provides us this bit of keen insight that the resurrection of Christ was the centerpiece of their message. The Easter story has been at the center of the church's message ever since. And 2,000 years later, the Easter story is still galvanizing the church into its mission all around the globe. I'd like to share with you now the the two life-changing differences that the Easter story continues to make. The first is this, that we've been set free to experience a joyful real life right now. So in the plaza of the Lincoln Museum stand figures portraying the Lincoln family shortly after their arrival at the White House in 1861. And they are incredibly real and lifelike. In in fact, you almost might expect them to start breathing or talking at any moment. But you know what? They won't because they're silicone. You can't ever really meet or get to know or have a relationship with Abraham Lincoln or his family. Those, Those silicone figures in the plaza are about as close as you're ever going to come. In contrast, however you can actually meet and get to know and experience a relationship with the living God. In fact, we are made to live in vital union with him in the company of a new community of his people called the local church. Now, I'm not talking this morning about getting religion. Your background may be Catholic or Jewish or Mormon or Hindu or Methabaptist, Presbycostal or whatever. You may be agnostic, you may be skeptic, you may be nothing at all. Frankly, I don't think God's really concerned about what your background is. But he is interested in having a relationship with you. God made you. You belong to him. He knows you, and he loves you. He wants you to know him and to love him and to experience the dynamic life-giving relationship with him as the real God. He wants you to have real life. In fact, God's already placed within sight of every one of us an inner hunger to know him. I, I think our problem is twofold. One, we, we have mistaken this hunger, and so we've looked to satisfy it in things that leave us empty or addicted or hurt or just disappointed. Or secondly, we, we have dulled this hunger through sin and selfishness. But Easter is God's invitation to experience his love. No matter what we've done, no matter how we've lived, no matter how many mistakes you've made or how far from him you may have strayed or or how dull you may be through sin and selfishness and disobedience, God loves you and he wants you to experience the freedom of his kingdom. The Bible tells us in the book of Colossians, the first chapter, that he, God, rescued us from the power of darkness, and brought us safe into the kingdom of his dear Son, by whom we are set free. 
Galatians 5, uh, verse, uh, chapter 5, verse 1 declares, freedom is what we have. Christ has set us free. And so he invites us, friends, into the real life of his kingdom, and that life is marked by freedom, true freedom. Freedom from sin and death through his gift of forgiveness. Freedom from sickness and disease through his gift of healing and restoration and wholeness. Freedom from the devil and his demons and their oppression through his gift of deliverance. Freedom from hopelessness through his gift of answered prayer. Freedom from worry and fear and anxiety because of his gift of the surety of future provision. Freedom from self-centered living as we become his servants. So to enter the kingdom is to experience his love, his freedom, real life, God's favor. What God asks of us in response is that through a conscious and willful surrender, we take a step towards Jesus and we say, I welcome you into my life. Now, when we do that, when we turn from sin and selfishness and disobedience, that's called repentance, and we turn to God, at that moment the Bible says that we become born again. And and then God comes to take up residence in our heart by His personal and powerful presence in the Holy Spirit. He brings a life change. Now, I kind of think that many of us imagine... God wants to kind of come in and just rearrange the furniture of our lives a little. But actually, what he wants to do is turn them completely upside down in his kingdom as his reign and rule, his kingdom, invade every nook and cranny of our lives. Our relationships and home life, our mental and emotional constitutions, uh, our health, our vocation, our finances, our needs for security and significance, our regrets about the past, our hopes about the future. He wants to touch every part of that. I I personally think that we've just expected far too little in the Christian life. We've settled for thinking that following Jesus means, well, going to church, trying to be good and live right, and then having him help us quit cussing. I mean, those things are great, but his desires for us are so much larger And they're captured in Jesus' words in the Gospel of John, chapter 10. The thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life. The good news of the kingdom is that we should expect, in some measure, the full benefits of that future age to come in our life today, here and now. We should expect a measure of joy and peace and security and provision right now. A rich and satisfying life, a life and having it more abundantly. That's God's design. Now, of course, Jesus was clear in the full scope of his teaching. There will always be aspects of incompleteness in this life because his kingdom isn't all the way here. Until he returns, there'll be this coexistence of the two kingdoms on the earth, the the present evil age right alongside the inbreaking kingdom age to come. 
And in that sense, not all prayers will be answered. Our, our lives will still struggle with some doubt or, or disappointment or difficult circumstances. Our hearts will still ache. Some of our dreams will die. But the four real resurrection sets us free to experience a joyful real life right now. The second life-changing difference that the Easter story makes is this. We've been promised a glorious hope of a future resurrection. Many people are afraid of dying. For some, the fear is tied into their religious beliefs, particularly if they happen to be going through a period of questioning, worrying that maybe they're wrong or that some mistake may cause them to be eternally condemned. Still others lack uh, fear the lack of control over death. Others fear the loss of dignity or pain that may surround the act of dying. But most, I believe, uh, fear the unknown. They're uncertain of what really happens on the other side. And there's even some confusion in the church. I mean, all you have to do is attend a few funerals or listen to Christian radio, and you'll find out there's no agreement on what's to follow after we die. Traditionally, of course, we suppose that Christianity teaches about a heaven above to which the saved go and a hell below for the wicked and unrepentant. And most in the wider American culture simply believe that If you're good enough, then you'll go to heaven when you die. But I want to suggest to you this morning that there's actually very little in the Bible about going to heaven when we die, and not a lot about a post-mortem hell either. What we see, the preoccupation with the early church and the writers of the New Testament was upon our future bodily resurrection at the completion of God's renewal of all things when the kingdom comes in full. Now, when they spoke of heaven as a post-mortem destination, they seemed to regard this heavenly bliss, referred to by theologians as the intermediate state, as a temporary stage on the way towards the future eventual resurrection of the body. In the Old Testament... This intermediate state was referred to as Abraham's bosom or paradise. In the New Testament, it's referred to as heaven or the presence of Christ. And when Paul says, for instance, in Philippians 1.23, that his desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, he was indeed thinking of a blissful life, but only as the prelude to the great hope of the future resurrection. So those Christians who were catalyzed into action by the first Easter held firmly to a two-part belief about the future. First, death, and whatever intermediate state immediately followed. Then second, a new bodily existence at the resurrection in a newly remade world. Resurrection to them meant In the words of N.T. Wright, life after life after death. The early Christian hope centered squarely on the future resurrection. 
Let's read together the Apostle Paul's resurrection anthem in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 21. Paul says, You see, just as death came into the world through a man, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised as the first of the harvest, and then all who belong to Christ will be raised when he comes back. Continuing in verse 51. Let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who've died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will also be transformed. So Jesus, as the first of the harvest, means that the resurrection unfolds in several stages. Christ's surprising and unexpected resurrection in the middle of this present evil age was the first fruits. Then, upon his return in what we call the second coming, the dead in Christ will rise, and along with those who are still living, will all be transformed to receive a new glorified body. We won't be living as a disembodied spirit in heaven, but rather in a new glorified body on a recreated earth. Everything made new. You see, in the end of time, the dwelling place of God, the heavenly city, will actually descend out of heaven to the new earth where we will live in the presence of God. We, we can see that in the book of Revelations, where the Apostle John says this in Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared. The sea was also gone, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. So finally, at long last, there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. God will do for the entire cosmos what he did for Jesus on the first Easter. Those disciples, those early Christ followers, looked at Jesus's resurrection as the first fruits of the liberation of the whole world the complete restoration of everything, a world that had been created good and beautiful, but that had been corrupted and made subject to decay through sin. They saw the coming of God's kingdom in Jesus' death and resurrection to be the inauguration of God's plan to redeem everything, to liberate everything that had been 
once enslaved. The Apostle Paul described it this way in the eighth chapter of the book of Romans. The creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to this present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he's provided for us. It's no wonder that those early Christians, that that their deepest hope was the future resurrection. The deepest desires of our fully human heart will be completely, utterly satisfied. Then we'll experience the, the final victory and rescue from the corruption and decay of the cosmos because of sin and evil, as the world itself is recreated and made new. We're going to receive a new transformed body. I don't know about you, but I'm looking forward to that. Thus fulfilling God's ultimate purpose in creation in the first place. Think about this. We will live in God's presence in a glorified, transformed body being engaged in what the Bible calls reigning with God. That's good news. God's kingdom of joy and peace and justice and hope for everyone worldwide, was launched that first Easter morning as Jesus rose from the tomb. And Jesus now invites us to live in vital union with himself, to experience his real life, a life of freedom among the redeemed community known as the church, where we can be his new creation people. And then as we cooperate with Jesus, we can extend the truth and the love and the power and the blessings of that future age to come into our spheres of existence today. And when we do, we are announcing that God's kingdom has actually come. And then we can go to worship and love and serve and obey him in our everyday, workaday, getting up and going to school and work lives. And we can eagerly await creation's full redemption, knowing that on the day of his return, we'll be resurrected and totally transformed. Friends, death holds no fear to those of us who are in Christ because we've been promised the glorious hope of a future resurrection. God, we're just so grateful that the Easter story is powerful and compelling. We thank you, Lord, for what you did, inaugurating your kingdom of hope and mercy and justice and truth and power on that first morning. Thank you that you endured the agony and pain of suffering at the cross because of the joy that was set before you. And it's our earnest prayer of thanks today, Lord, for what you did, providing for us something we could never earn. 
And we pray, Lord, that, that each one of us that's here today would, would experience more fully and more completely the real life that you raised to proclaim was now available. Thank you for the joyful real life that you offer. Thank you for the hope of the future, the coming resurrection. And now, Lord, as we, as we give to you uh, our hearts and hands in song and in our offering, we pray that you take these for what they are, tokens that we want our life to count for you. We say thank you and that we love you. In your name, amen.